Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Olin Steinhauer. He's the author of numerous best-selling and award-winning novels. He returns to the literary espionage scene with his outstanding and timely novel, The Middleman, having created and written the Epic's television series Berlin Station for the past two years. The story of a left-wing extremist group heading in a deadly direction, The Middleman explores the personal toll of political subterfuge and the grand deceptions of people in power. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Olin Steinhauer. Olin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So in addition to writing one of the best novels I've read in a while, The Middleman, I didn't find out until after I had read the book that you were the creator of Berlin Station. Yeah, that was a remarkable piece of luck. Um, it was my first attempt at, well, the story behind it, I don't, I, I'll, maybe I'll say it briefly. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, I had no plans to do any sort of TV work. Uh, but I was living in Budapest, with my wife and daughter. We decided we were going to relocate to New York. And on the way, we stayed four days with our friends in Berlin. And we adored the city. I, would, I didn't really know it that well before. And both of us just fell in love with it. So we arrived in New York. And you know how Manhattan is. It is loud. It is hectic. It's dirty. It's all the negatives and everything's constantly under construction. And my wife said to me, look, is there any way we could spend half the year in Berlin? And I said, I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? And then that sort of nagged at me until one day I just had the idea, hey, why don't I make a TV show there? I wonder if that would work. And the fact that that led to an actual TV show being made is is stupid luck. I don't know how that happened. That should be like an HGTV like special. How do you get your ideal home? Yeah. Just write a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting you say that that it comes out of it because you know I think of like somebody like Woody Allen for whom like <laughs> New York is like a supporting character, sometimes main character. M Night Shyamalan does this with Philadelphia. Yeah. It does feel like. Berlin is a character in the show. Yeah. I mean, that was always the idea. It was, you know, obviously you're trying to make an entertaining show about spies, but why set it in a city unless that city is going to be a real presence? Otherwise, we just save money and shoot in L.A. And I think particularly in the first season, um, a lot of our focus was on finding these locations and trying to sort of get not only the flavor of the city, but like, but like have the city engage with our main characters. Um, I, and I always like the idea of this. I mean, it turned out, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think it's the first show to ever tell the story of CIA agents working out of an embassy and focusing on that world. Um, and one of the reasons I liked that idea was not just to show Berlin, but to also show how when you're working for American intelligence, overseas and that's your home you know berlin is your home it's still in a way enemy territory and i thought that would that would give this sort of constant tension under the surface i don't know if it works or not but that was part of the thinking going into it yeah and it also has a feel one of the things that's great about it, for those who haven't seen it uh, you should binge watch it immediately but i mean what one of the things that's great is that it's got this gritty realism to it it's it's 
it's and there's no ninjutsu. It's I mean there are action scenes, right? But there it's not you know uh, these long sequence style fights and things like that. I mean there 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 yeah. are certainly action scenes, but it looks gritty. I mean it doesn't. It, it's got this. It it's got it's very it's a very dramatic suspenseful show. Yeah. But but it also they look like they're government employees living a life of an employee and 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 it's not like you know james bond where you never see those moments you know you you see the the, the actual wear and tear that goes on in their lives yeah which is compelling was, yeah i mean that's to me what's most interesting i mean look I, when i was younger i did i did love the sort of james bond strain of spy fiction and movies um but when i got older you know i read you know i read my john le carre and it it, it convinced me that sort of the bureaucratic world was just as interesting if not more so because you can de- deal with character development and such and it's a the re- i mean the reason why i do this kind of fiction rather than some other is because it's always been interesting for me this question of What's the human toll? Not necessarily doing James Bond stuff, but simply living this life where you are lying on a regular basis, where you're pretending to be someone who maybe you're not. Um, For me, that's always fascinating. Like, how does that change you? Does it or does it change you? Maybe it doesn't at all. Um, And at some point, are we when we act as if we're someone else? At what point do we actually become that someone else? At what point does the lie become who we are? Are we our action or are, are we what we think we are? That's sort of, that sounds highfalutin because you can tell it in a nice, fun way. Well, yeah, there's a book. Well, one, the first book is, it was called On Bullshit by a guy named Harry Frankfurt. And he's a retired yeah. philosopher professor from Princeton. And it's all about like, he starts with the Oxford English Dictionary, the etymology of bullshit. But what he thinks of bullshit is sort of like a liar is superior morally to the bullshitter because a liar has to learn enough of the truth to 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 to, to obfuscate it. Like yeah. what, what a bullshitter, if he tells the truth or a lie, he doesn't care. He's just bullshitting. But then he has a follow up book on the truth, which is so compelling. They're both really tiny, like 100 page like monographs. But he talks about how the pain of the lie is that we really want to know and be known in a shared reality as human beings. And mm-hmm. every lie you take, you, you you tell constrains more and more to the unknowable. Like so, you, so you have this. It, it goes against what fundamentally we want as social animals. Like th- that, it, yeah. it's sort of so. So if that's your job, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how wet, weird is it that it's like it's actually virtuous to lie, or at least you're telling yourself it's it, it's virtuous right. to lie because it's for a greater cause. And psychologically, like, what does that do to you? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, you know, there's been, I, in plenty of my fiction, I cast, <coughs> excuse me, I, I, I cast, you know, CIA or FBI as bad guys, as, you know, as much as I cast them as good guys. But in this, we just wanted to have, okay, these are just normal people. They have, they're, they're each doing their job either because of patriotism or some sort of personal quirk. Um, and they come at it like normal people who have breakfast every day, have relationships, fail in their relationships. Um, that's why, um, I think Leland Orser's character, uh, Robert, Robert Kirsch is a very, he's in a way encapsulates it probably better than any of them because he's the guy who's fucked up his marriage, um, and is constantly anguished about that. But at the same time, his guiding principle is I want to be the good guy. I want to be the good guy who makes the world safe 
for everybody. But he's also faced with his own limitations as a human being. Um, and I think the actor pulls it off incredibly well. Yeah, you also do a good job showing the vulnerability of people that like make a government wage, right? So you're mm. you, so you're extremely vulnerable to being compromised, right? Because you, you give up so much of a normal life, and, and and what do you get at the end of it? You know, this kind of yeah. where you know, this is why yeah. I mean, yes, it's, it's <laughs> you know, there's one of the, these things that people are 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 mixed bags, and I mean, these tensions are told so well. In, in in the show in a way that, that again that you it's interesting too because you there's a shade of gray over the whole thing where, where you where you see people as real people there's not sort of white hats and black hats riding in that, that yeah there's an ambiguity that it, it, that is again you know so 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 much like real life like the lives yeah. we live in right yeah i mean it's it's always been sort of one of my guiding principles in writing fiction is to remember that bad guys never think of themselves as bad guys you know if you go in with that basic truth which i think generally is a truth uh, with very few exceptions you know you have to sort of represent them that way um everybody thinks they're doing the right thing either it's you know it's for their country you know because look any anybody who these American spies run up against our patriots in their own country. <laughs> you know, everyone's doing good. Uh, it's just that different goods slam up against other goods um, and somebody has to win. Yeah. And the challenge of recruiting an asset, right, is that you're asking them to be what you would despise and yet you're valorizing that, right? And so, yeah. how do you, I mean, that there's the psychological complexity of that is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, it just is just so much fodder for interesting drama. Um, that's what, you know, look, when I was, uh, when I, f I mentioned Lucare before, it's before I read him, you know, I enjoyed spy like movies mostly, and I'd read a little bit, but I had gone to school and I had a creative writing degree, MFA, um, in, from Boston, uh, from Emerson College. And you were, and, a, you were a Fulbright scholar, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. And I was that was to Romania. But, you know, through my education and, you know, which I which was I praised in a lot of ways. I thought it was a great school, but there was also a level of indoctrination in it, um, which made me think, OK, well, what am I going to write? Well, I'm going to write dramas about middle class life in the suburbs. You know, that's what you do. That's called literature. And then after just after graduating, somehow I got my hands on first a spy who came in from the cold and I went, oh, well, that was neat. What else is he, has he done? And then I check out um, Tinker Taylor and I came to this really late and I was bl just bowled over because I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to write about middle class angst in the suburbs. I can write about something that's really exciting in a lot of ways and still hit all of the same notes. Um, and I'm not saying I do that all the time, but that was the thing that opened it, opened up the world of spy fiction to me. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of what I've, you know, I, I can, like, I consider Tinker Taylor, like one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. It's because it's like a social novel. Um, it deals with personalities. It could probably could do a little better work on its female characters, which everyone always criticizes him for, particularly during that period. But it doesn't do a bad job with them either. Um, but it's essentially, it, it's a picture of England at a certain moment in history, like from the bottom to the top. It's beautifully done. And, and isn't what, what you're doing kind of like, like, if you think of like James, James Joyce with Ulysses saying, okay, like, 
Middle class Irish life, a day in the life of a Dubliner, is just as epic as any Greek poet. Yeah. I mean, isn't what you're saying is, look, uh, the the epic spy tale can have as much mundane stuff, which is actually what someone like Joseph is the epic stuff, right? Like this yeah. is you can be in an exciting uh, context that's right. not sort of like one damn thing after another, kind of it, 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 yeah. in, in some sort of corporate uh, office park, and still. Have some of the have all the same existential issues, right? And maybe worse existential issues because you might feel healthier relationally if you were in an office park, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It's funny you brought up Joyce because he's the reason I'm a writer. Funnily enough, I read him when I was 19. I read Portrait of the Artist mm. as a young man, and that and that was the first book that blew my socks off in in such a way that it actually changed the course of my life. I said, okay, if I can do, if I can write something like this, I can die happy. I can consider that I've done something with my life. And so that, that changed it all right there. And then later, Le Carre shifted it in a slightly different direction. Do your like, colleagues that you went to grad school with like, look at you as a sellout? Like, gosh, all right, you made it. You're kind of, you're writing spy, you've heard spy novels that people are reading. You've written, you've created a television show, man. You're not like, um, yeah. You know, you're not pining away and only being read in academic journals. And like, are you like, are you, did they put kick me signs on your back at the reunions? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't talked to them. I mean, look, I mean, when I, cause I graduated, um, and then immediately went off to Romania on the Fulbright. And then after that went to New York to get an agent. And this was, you know, a while before I actually got published. Um, and no, I, there was one person who, what was it? It was now. No, it's all right. That's just, no. I was going to say there was a, there was a story about one person who was very angry at me at some point or mocking of me for for what I wrote. Uh, but that was earlier on. It doesn't really work in this. Yeah, yeah. You can laugh them all the way to the set of Berlin Station. Do, do you get how close do you get to the action of filming something like that when you've created Berlin? Like, do you get to go on set at all? I mean, what was like? Well, do, do you I, get to go to the premiere in the tuxedo and the on oh, the? Yeah. No. Look, I mean, look. I created it. I was there in the writing room for everything. And the way TV is done is the writers are more important than the director. That's TV. It's not film. And so, so really, yes, there were writers were always on set. I was always on set and I learned and working like with the directors that we had, I learned a credible amount. And, you know, in the end, now I want to I want to direct, you know, I want to I want to direct because I feel like I know a little bit. Is, uh, that, is that because with a film, you've got a shorter screenplay and, and then the, the, the director can bring that to life. But in in and you probably and you have a long time to shoot two hours, like right. whereas a serial drama, well, it, it, you're still writing it as you're filming it. So you're filming episodes one and two, but episodes nine and ten haven't been written yet. You know, so but the writers have a better idea about where everything's mm -hmm. going. But also, for some reason, like writers can come, the writer can come in and say, no, look, that shot is bad. That shot does not work for what we're trying to tell here. And uh, and I suppose one of the biggest reasons why this is true is because the writers are around for the whole season. It's very rare that a director will direct a whole season. So if you're working with like one director for the whole season, then maybe that's possible. But the time constraints of TV. But when, you, but when you're doing, if someone's doing a film, right, I guess it's different because for a film, they write a screenplay and then it's the directors, right? I mean, it's not, they're not, yeah. yeah so that, whereas here, you're kind of, 
the art you're the master of the arc in, in yeah, many ways that's true no that's true and uh the i've worked on like we're we're now trying to get things together because i wrote a screenplay for my book all the old knives which is the one that came out previous to middleman and and i went through we had, for a while we had we had various directors attached and i had written the screenplay everyone seemed very happy with it and then we when we got at one point we attached a director it since didn't work out but but he said okay uh, i want to sit down with you and work through like as the director I would want to make these changes, which I was very nervous about. But it turned out they were all like tiny things <laughs> like like I don't think I can film that, but I can film if you just adjust the scene like and I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, it's like it was almost like a production edit. But sometimes directors will come in and say, I don't think this storyline works. I think it should be this way or that way. And I haven't dealt with that yet, but we'll see. Is it gratifying? I mean, in the sense of you know, Hegel says right that the 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 novel is sort of the 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 the, the bourgeois version of the epic, and it's almost like the serial drama is the is the now the bourgeois bourgeois version of the not like novel. Yeah. But you, I mean, I, I would have never thought if you told me years ago, like fifteen years ago, that Holly Berry would be doing serial dramas on yeah. network television, right? But I, but I mean. The serial drama is where it's at right now, right? I mean, the character yeah. development, like the water cooler conversation yeah. at, in the office park or, or in the office. It's not around film anymore. It, it's no, it's, not. it's around serial yeah. drama. And, and, you can, and I guess as a novelist, right, you, who develops, whose, whose job is you're trying to get these characters in a context where people really connect. I mean, serial drama seems like such a great palette to do that. Now it really is. I mean, look, the you have the thing about the novel that's I mean, if you're comparing for a writer, what what's better? The novel allows you you are God. You know, you control everything. You'll have an editor who will come in at some point and give suggestions, but that's it. When you're working in TV and I, I think film is very similar, but, but I think particularly TV, you have, it's you, you have, you bring your little tender idea to them and you say, okay, I've got this figured out. And then it's jumped upon by like five, six producers, studio network. Everybody has to get their hands on it. Everybody needs to be satisfied really. And you go through that process. Look, that first episode, I wrote 12 different drafts of it. Like not little drafts, but like not small differences, big differences. You know, the first episode is extremely different from the first the episode that I wrote and that they bought at the beginning. Because I wrote on my own, like a little we call it a Bible. It's like an outline of the the show, and then the first episode. When I did that, everyone was super happy, and I thought, okay, this is going to be easy. And then once it was greenlit, once the money opened up, then suddenly everybody is like, oh, okay, this is serious. And then everybody had to be, and the director too had to be happy. Did, did you, when you're writing all these drafts, are you like, shit, I, I graduated school to not do this again, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you're, like, you're under these kinds of deadlines. Like that seems yeah. crazy. No, it was, look, I mean, that, that was extreme. Uh, honestly, the whole show was stressful because um, I, I was only there for the first season. So the second season, I didn't do writing on. I'm, I'm an executive producer and, you know, and still the creator. But uh, what I do now is I'm one of those people who puts their hands on the script. So I see all the drafts. I send notes and everything. And so you get to um, go to the red carpet still without the all nighter. And actually, I haven't got I haven't done. Actually, I stepped back because because 
Look, when I came up with the idea and it got accepted, I was halfway, I'd written a very first draft of The Middleman. So this was a few years ago. I'd written the first draft. It was a very bad draft. And I knew, oh, I have to rewrite this thing. Then the TV show happened. How do you know it's a bad draft? Is it right? Like, did, did, you, uh, did, did you send it to other people? Did you, did friends or colleagues? I showed it, I showed it to my, my, my agent and my uh, editor. And, and I got my, my editor's notes back. back. She would never tell me it's bad. But she would say, <laughs> look, this doesn't work. You know, she's, she's not going to treat me with kit gloves because we're all in this together. We've got to make it work. But no, it, it was bad. Essentially, I, I wrote it. I was rushed. Half of my mind was on Berlin Station. You know, as I was developing it, I just wasn't focused enough. So when Berlin Station happened, then suddenly it was like two years or a year and a half, two years where I couldn't work on the novel at all. And so by the end of that first season, they said, OK, you're going to come back for next season. Right. And I said, I have I got I've got another career. <laughs> before that I had before this. And so I had to, that's when I had to rewrite, um, had to finally had to stop the show in order to come back and finish being a novelist. Um, so this book must've been pretty important that you said no to two more. Well, I I was contracted. I'm, you know, I've been, I was contracted to as what it was my 10th, my 10th novel, you know? So I'm not, you have to find a way to balance this stuff out you know, I could have gone back for a second season and dealt with all that stress again. But also, like, it's TV is exhausting. When you're there on the ground, it's it's. I just can't even describe to you how little sleep I I got and how much stress there is. Um, and because you have to make everybody happy. And look, it's lovely too. They were like, I had some of my best moments working on that thing, but it's extremely hard on the body. And, um, and the idea of going back and just sitting in a room and writing a novel sounded pretty good at that point. But also, I didn't have a choice in the matter. My Contractually, I, I was already like two years late on the book. What, what kind of pressure is, wor- is worse, being an early writer and trying to make it and get the contractual thing or to the point where, OK, this is number 10. I got to put like I'm, I'm kind of like a goal. I'm, I'm the golden goose at this point. It's egg time. Like, I mean, yeah. wh- which is worse? <laughs> um, look, it, I think in a way being the golden egg, because when when you're a struggling writer, you're not least, you know, I had a day job You know, I had a way. My day job, I just worked in libraries. It wasn't a particularly glamorous job, and I never made hardly any money. But like your relationship to your writing is always about potential and possibility. Essentially, there's no, you haven't been typecast as a spy novelist. You haven't, you don't have anybody demanding something by a certain time. Essentially, it's all possibility. You could write Ulysses as your first book. Who knows? You just got to keep banging away at it. And so in a way, there's something relaxing about that. Um, You're frustrated because you don't have a book out um, and that nobody's recognizing your evident genius, etc. But it's still like you can still imagine anything. And then once you have a career and your name is out there, suddenly, you know, it's like talk about when you're lying and your 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 choices become limited. And now your choices are a little bit more limited um, because you have a history that you have to maintain in some way. Um, so if I come out now with like historical romance novel, then it might cause a little consternation with my publisher. Yeah, they're going to be like, this is going to be a copper egg and we're looking for gold. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, so this book, it's interesting. You began developing it years ago, and yet yeah. it seems like it was written for the moment because the the middleman. You've got this uh, this movement, this the the, the massive brigade that that is like this. It's kind of part occupy, sort of, yeah. uh, but part sort of uh, a little more a little less anarchist and yet more, I mean, they're, 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 they're more concentrated left and yet kind of anarchisty. And, yeah. and there's this cynicism around institutions and things like that. Even from the lead character, Rachel, one of the protagonists, Rachel, who's an mm. FBI agent, she's as cynical in many ways about the way the institution works as the people in this brigade that are sort of this, uh, you know, soft domestic terror. I mean, they they wind up be, being a, a domestic terror group, but that's not how they start at all. Right. Yeah. And, and so this like this, it feels like this this kind of pervasive timeliness. And yet you wrote you 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 conceptualized this book well before the cultural moment, before Trump, before yeah. the Occupy movement, before any of that. This was all kind of festering in you. Yeah, I mean, this was look my first my I, my first idea for something like this massive brigade was back in the '90s. I had a friend. I worked. I was. I had gone to school in Austin, and I worked at a restaurant. And I had a good friend of mine. He was like a self-avowed Marxist, and he would always make these jokes about. He would like take a, a roll and like throw it on the ground and say revolution. And he'd go running around. He was just, he was hilarious, but he was also very serious. He was like a union organizer. And, he, you know, he'd come from Chicago doing that sort of stuff. And he turned me on to this band. It was a punk band, uh, Nation of Ulysses. And they had this whole, like, this whole idea of we, we are this revolutionary underground. And, and they use their own lingo and stuff like that. Way back then, I had this idea of, like, I'm going to write a novel about about this sort of thing, some weird American revolutionary underground. 
And that's what, so that's, that idea has been around like forever because people were cynical in the nineties. They, they were cynical in the knots. They were cynical in the eighties. Um, and so a lot of the influences I've sort of gathered over time, you know, a lot of it comes from uh, European uh, movements from the 60s and stuff. But so really the idea of the group itself wasn't what well, to me, it's not it's not really new. But but this this moment in history we're living through now is a is an echo of everything that's happened in the past. And so to, to think that we're going through a moment that's never existed before is wrong. Yeah, yeah when the um, president of the United States in, in the State of the Union has to go, we will never be a socialist country. Like, when you, when you have to say that in America, you know the yeah. cultural moment has changed, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought that was hilarious. I, didn't, I don't know when he ever thought someone was pushing for socialism. Um, Andre, I guess that was, that's with uh, health care, universal health care. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's right. FDR was a big socialist. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so was Eisenhower with the ta- oh, tax yeah. rate at 92 percent. I mean, <laughs> that guy, that guy was a total um, Leninite um, or no Trotskyite. But um, so. So, yeah. So a lot of this stuff. And I, I, look, I was surprised in a way that it because I wrote particularly the first draft thinking, oh, OK, Hillary is going to be our next president. Um, but and. Really, my, my original imagining of this was looking first. That's started, what Trump was thinking when he wrote his concessions, or somebody was writing the concessions. Yeah, right. Right? You, yeah. you weren't alone in that. Yeah, and the, I look in my, and also in my, because I had had my left wing idea back in the '90s, and then when I started working on it, I thought, oh, okay, I'm looking around, like who's angry now, and and I'm see what I was seeing was the right was angry at that time, building militias and stuff like that. And I said, oh, okay, I guess I'll have to do do a right wing group. And then I started on that and I realized I actually I'm not I'm I'm a complete lefty. I can't empathize enough to sort of and I can't if my if my characters there's no bad guys, then I'm going to have a problem writing this. So then I had to make it left wing and I suppose I lucked out the Trump got elected and and, and then um and then like a left wing angry group. And then and look they go out of their way to, or Martin Bishop, the leader of it, tries never to call himself, call the group left. You know, it's trying to say we are, the issue here is not left or right. The issue is that we're all being fooled by the people above us. Yeah, he's a real populist. He's a sophisticated it, populist. Yeah. And and so like, and I was, I was kind of pleased when I came up with this, his metaphor that he uses is like, what about, you know, in these underground dog fights? What if the dogs suddenly realized that the enemy wasn't the other dog, but their masters? Then it would be a bloodbath. So when he says something like that, the media picks it up as, oh, these guys are totally violent when that's not actually the plan. Yeah. And you it, it's interesting because you have some interesting scenes, unlike Berlin Station, like the the. The 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 supporting character is America in many aspects. Like you know, there's this great sort of bougie Montclair party yeah. in Montclair, New Jersey, which is a great little town. You know, where Martin Bishop shows up, and and yeah. there's this writer who lived in Berlin, who's kind of like he and his wife are having all these tensions, and and then you yeah. know, there's these great scenes in the middle of the country and in Florida, and, and 
So you really, and it's interesting too, because the massive brigade, you know, you, you look at like the, you think, uh, you look at like the, the women's march and some of the internal struggles it's had with the intersectionality, right? Because I mean, on one level, intersectionality is great to figure, to figure out like, wow, there are multiple kinds of suffering. And if you, if you're in these yeah. two groups, you're suffering into it. But the hard thing is, right, when you start to compare the intersections, right? And so, well, you, you know, and, and they have these tensions because Farrakhan's involved. And then some of the Jewish yeah. lead feminists are saying, no, we can't. Have so, I mean, you see some of those tensions in the brain. It's fascinating that, that yeah. you, when you're really trying to have a broad based populist movement, there's, you know, it, it again, they're just like they're normal people. And you have all these tensions. It's just a fascinating context yeah. to look at the American anger. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think so. I mean, look, I was because you bring up the marches and, you know, we go, we take our daughter to all the women's marches and and at one point, and when you're in, particularly in New York, the women's marches, it seems very much, you know, all together. Then this year, they had two separate marches because of controversy about the national group and the local New York group took the main path. Um, but at one point, we heard that there was going to be a black women's march. And so, and, you know, we were going down there, we were going to go give our support there. And we arrive and it's just like, it's just like a part of a sidewalk. And now it's full of people, but it's a very small area. And it was, and I was really saddened by that because I thought out of, out of all of New York, you couldn't get more people to come out and support black women. And like, really kind of like, I think about half of the crowd was white. Um, and, and it was, but it was really eye opening for, you know, for me to some extent, but I think also for our daughter, um, you know, who's who's 11 now um, to kind of listen to these stories uh, from these women and to see how you you think, you know, you know, the stories from the Women's March. But these are some very particular stories that are just as valid and just just as common. Um, it was like it was a very, it's a very dark. There some very dark stories came out of it. And I was glad she was there to listen to it. Um, but, yeah, so like we had one of the speakers came up and she said, okay, when we start to march, can you guys do me a favor and let all the black people get at the front and so that we can represent ourselves? And she brought that up and I was, I was like, what? Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, but all these, in, these interdivisions are kind of, I don't know, it's, they're important, but they also kind of weaken the force of you know, the resistance, uh, a little bit more than I'd like. And there's no institutional rules that say, okay, well, this is how you know, it's, it's, yeah. but it's amazing though that you, you, so, I mean, the, the novel begins with all these kids. I mean, they're mostly like millennial age kids who are, you know, young adults or emerging adults. Yeah. They just drop out. I mean, they get the yeah. order and they take their cell phones, they take their ATM cards, they get out of their cash, they drop their, and they drop off the grid. And it's this amazing kind of, it, it, moment where this group is built by the, by the grid right but yeah and then their dyna- their, their their sort of climactic move is to get off yeah and and it, and it kind of freaks people out right like wow yeah. we have like, it, it's 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 like is it is it cult is it ufo is it sort of this is a phenomenon like yeah. wow they just dropped <laughs> It's, it's so scary, right? It's, it is, right? Yeah. It is like the leftovers, right? It's, yeah. like, it's like the leftovers meets like Occupy Wall Street. I mean, it's a very, yeah. it, so it's this, it's this freaky thing that really ha- has a, a kind of chilling effect on the country. Yeah, no, it is. And because I, I was look, trying to think of something that would get everybody's attention, yet not be violent. And it's simply everybody disappears. 
And and it's one of those things that's left. It's so open and unanswered that essential that I also want to talk about the media's involvement in this and how they help and hurt things. And so it leaves it open for the media to fill that vacuum of no information with with all their fears and all of their sensationalism. Um, So hopefully that works. Yeah. And one of the things I think that's so compelling about the book is that as the reader, you're as in the dark about what's going on with the brigade as the participants. Like that you are, you're not, you don't have an omniscient narrator's point of view Mm -hmm. to tell it. Like basically you don't know what's going on either and and neither do they. And that's, what's so interesting about it. Right. And, and you, you see that from the, FBI agent and, and Rachel, who's this FBI agent. I mean, she is maybe the person looking outside that has some decent insight, but even she is, you know, like yeah. dumbfounded. Well, even even you've got um, the oh my god, his, his name is slipping out of my head. The F the undercover FBI agent who is in the group, even he doesn't know what's going on right because no one in the group knows. right right you know? so he's... All, they're, but they're they're based on faith they have this basic faith that this is the right way to go we'll wait for martin bishop our leader to pass down the order and the thing is martin bishop doesn't know either. Uh, right, right he and he and the, this other character benjamin they're kind of at odds uh yeah. you know and they kind of they have this apparent close friendship which in the yeah. beginning there are these inseparable kind of comrades, and yet you figure out, whoa, whoa, that relationship isn't as tight as we thought it was. Yeah. And, and there's and and, and so you, it's just interesting because you 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 have all the whether you're in, in the FBI or in this kind of radical resistance movement, you, you have to live with social human life, which is complex and right, and yeah. ambiguous and yeah, and maybe more so if you're on either of those extremes, right? One of these pe- yeah. people that have to keep all these secrets. Yeah, I mean that's and. Um... You know, you have Martin and you have uh, Benjamin and the two of them are, uh, you know, like Martin is the sort of he's the theoretician. He is the thinker and he's not violent. And you but you have Benjamin and Benjamin, in a way, is more the reason why I was writing the book, why I felt the need to do it, because the book was, in a way, at least at the beginning, supposed to be about um, the anger and frustration that citizens feel when they feel like their voice cannot be heard. You know, look, we can vote every two, four years, but that when when things are happening in our government, you know, on an hourly basis, and we have no say in that, that just leads to anger. This is why revolutions happen. Um, it's because things things are falling apart and no one's doing anything about and that, it. And that's a nonpartisan thing. I mean, if you if you turn on Fox News, oh gosh, yeah. we're heading down the, the, the path towards socialism. If you put on MSNBC, yeah. we're in a right wing, you know, we're going, the Weimar Republic turned into the, the Reich. I mean, everybody yeah. feels alienated, right? No matter yeah. who's in, in power. Yeah. And, if, and the idea, at least what Bishop was trying to do, was to unite all of them. Like, okay, we're all upset. Now, now let's break the system so that we can build a better one. I mean, because because from his perspective, voting in more people wasn't going to do anything because like Ocasio-Cortez, like, you know, went through this thing about uh, campaign finance. I saw it earlier today. She did a nice job of laying out how the system itself is the problem. And uh, so instead, 
instead of going through voting more people into a system that is already too corrupted to fix, you just start all over. At least that's one of the, the philosophical threads uh, in the group. But then there are others who feel differently. You know, I tried to make it in a way as muddy as possible because if, if once characters start espousing political, you know, jargon, it starts to get a little bit boring to read. So I try to I try to avoid that until I can't anymore. One of the great lines is so there's the character Kevin is talking with with Benjamin and he says, "Well, you know, well why'd you bring Martin in? What how, you th- you don't think I could fund all this, do you?" <laughs> like, yeah. It's very pragmatic. Like, yeah. you know, I I didn't have the kind of upbringing. I could, you know, we needed a front guy and a money guy. Like, yeah, right. it's just it's so practical. You know, it, yeah. the, the earthiness of that is amazing. Yeah, and it's like, and but also that's a that's like example of Benjamin being like, no, I'm the movement. I'm the movement. He's just the front guy. Whereas, whereas Martin thinks I'm the movement. He's my muscle, you know, or he's like he'll do what needs to be done if necessary, um, and he helps keep me in line in a way. Uh, so yeah, no, it's interesting. Multiple perspectives. And I don't want to give too much away about the book because it, it's a thrilling book to read. But what's interesting is that there's this kind of showdown moment. And then as the story unfolds, uh, you there's so many levels of conspiracy, like yeah. in the brigade and the government, the the things that you're just kind of like. And it's not a, it's not fanciful. I mean, <laughs> you're kind of when you put the book down, you're kind of thinking, gosh, I wonder how much of this stuff is happening all the time. Like, yeah. you know, like, I mean, these are, I mean, do you, do people like, uh, are they shocked to find out it, that you have the kind of worked in libraries and stuff? Or like, were you a spook ever? I mean, did oh, you, yeah. People, yeah, I mean, yeah. Or ask you that kind of stuff? No, there's, a, yeah, there is that question. But look, if you read um, the, the CIA actually like reviewed uh, some of my books, my tourist books, the Milo Weaver books as well as uh, Berlin Station, because they have, um, what's it called? Studies in Intelligence is their declassified online journal you can find. And they'll have, always have a little section that just deals with pop culture representations of the CIA. And they're like, clearly this dude has never, <laughs> never worked for us. <laughs> because, but, but their gripe is like, I don't, but doesn't that make it sound more like you worked for them? Yeah, of no, course, no, he I, never I, worked for us. I know. Of course, they'd say that. No, because because I know because because for me, when writing this stuff, you know, like methods and techniques or like spy techniques, you know, how do you break into something or something like that? I'm I'm not deeply worried about doing what the CIA does. I'm just worried about it being plausible and interesting. Like, it, would it actually work? Okay, it would, so I'll, I'll use that, and which also makes it more interesting. But um, what's interesting to me, though, is, like, as you know, that psychological thing, and, like, what's the motivation? And so when I see the CIA attacking my thing, I find actually their biggest gripe is the motivation stuff. But it's not why is someone a spy or how does it make a spy feel to be that their thing is the motivation of of the agents themselves because so often they're doing bad things and so they hate or at least the the person who writes this thing i don't know about the cia as a whole the cia that they hate that i keep representing them as doing bad things and i only do that not because i hate the cia i think it's a great organization that but I think it's as flawed as a human being is because one of my big things that I've always tried to do in my books is to show that these 
these huge, seemingly omniscient organizations are just collections of human beings. That goes back to the bureaucracy thing. You know, what is all this stuff? And if people make mistakes, no system is good enough to avoid mistakes because each system is made up of flawed human beings. And that's always my point. You know, so every, you know, could it, it could be the FSB in Germany, it could be Mossad or it could be CIA. They're going to do bad things because they have they're flawed and they have access to the ability to do bad things because I have a very low opinion of human nature. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> when people do good things, I'm, I'm totally happy and surprised. I'm like, that's awesome. But I generally don't have a big faith in people. Yeah. The London times in the first half of the 20th century wrote, had this essay contest and the question, the prompt was what's wrong with the world? GK Chesterton submitted. I yeah. am sincerely GK Chesterton. <laughs> right. But that's that sort of realistic anthropology. And it, what I, I, what happens, I feel like is if we're on the left, everybody says, well, it's the market and business. That's where original sin is, or that's where the, everything goes wrong. Or if you're on the right, it's government. And it's, it's yeah. actually, if you just yeah. let the market go, everything would, but really, I mean, human being, it doesn't matter. People. Yeah, what do you put in religion or, or, or politics or business or, or yeah. universities? People, people are people, right? And if you give people secrets and power, I mean, they, they, there's just human nature is just going to run the same way it runs if, if they're in, you know. I mean, I don't know how bad it gets in the library, but I'm sure there's oh, things that happen. Don't, you know? don't get started. Oh, my God. <laughs> Burning books in the back when we, every chance we get. <laughs> So, I mean, what's next for you writing-wise after The Middleman? I mean, how, like, how does this feel in your career? I mean, like, you've written a bunch of novels now, and you had this TV mm -hmm. success, which is, I mean, I gosh, I'm just, like, dying for the next episode of, of, in season three. Like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, like, do you... How do you see the middleman in terms of your own accomplishments? Like, is or do you see this as like where is this in your career and sort of? Well, this is look. I my previous was it two books? Yeah. So before this, because I, I did the Milo Weaver trilogy, which is the Tourist, the Nearest Exit, and An American Spy, and that was like that was that was after doing a bunch of Eastern European Cold War novels that were. I'm quite pleased. I think they're quite good, but they didn't really get a, get an audience. Then I wrote this Milo Weaver thing and I suddenly had an audience because um, I was writing more sort of main, a little bit more mainstream, hopefully still interesting and different. Um, and then I took a, I did a trilogy and I thought, OK, that's done. And then I uh, and then I wrote the Cairo Affair, which takes place obviously in Cairo. And then All the Old Knives, which is a very slender novel uh, about a love affair, but spies. And and then um, and then I realized I kind of the reason why I wrote this book was because I had been living a couple of years in the U.S. Uh, but before that, I'd spent 10 years in Hungary um, where, you know, I got married, had a child and I got here and I realized I missed a lot. I missed I missed. So this is from like 2001 until 2011. I was there. A lot happened here. And what you know, what disturbed me about that was like, okay, I've brought my family here and I'm not, and I'm not, and I see a lot of things going on that are wrong. Yet I, my fiction doesn't play with that. My fiction is, was, was generally, you know, the inside baseball of spy games. It didn't have a big social impact. And also you have a child, you start to worry about what am I doing in this world? Am I affecting change? So 
without hopefully without resorting too much to polemics, I ended up with this. So this is in a way my first socially conscious novel. Um, and it's also it allows me like a little toe back into Milo Weaver, because the book I'm working on now is another Milo Weaver book, um, which in a way which connects to this book as well. So it's not really a sequel, but there is, you know, on the Venn diagram, there is overlap there. They're in the same universe. It's like you're, you've, you've got a Batman, Superman kind of, they're in the same uh, yeah, DC right. universe or whatever. Yeah, they're so, not, it's not like, a little, and yeah. there's crossover characters, you know, to some degree. Well, yeah, I, I'll tell you, it, like any great art, I mean, it doesn't read like a, a moral or ideological track. And it's probably because it, it, it's, it's so beautifully descriptive and not prescriptive. I mean, you, you, you paint the political Socio, sociological landscape we're in and and the characters are very vibrant in the midst of that but it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't read like like something that's um, telling you how to think or what to think i mean you're along for the ride yeah ho- hopefully good thanks um yeah i mean that's one thing i really it's funny it's like it's only like the opening i don't know how many pages but I'm, i've always been really happy with that um the so the New Jersey party scene. I feel uh, like I've but, been at that party. Like, yeah, I, you know, it's just so great. I mean, so many of the details, the cocktails, yeah. the conversation, the way the conversation's narrated. It's like, I've been yeah. at this party. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And also it was my way because like I was talking about my peer group. You know, I'm like, I'm like an East Coast liberal and I'm talking, essentially a lot of that is like little jokes in that, that I'm making fun of myself and my friends as these kind of soft, soft suburban liberals who talk a good game, but we're not going to do anything to change the world. And that's that I had to sort of emphasize that so that um, when when our character, um, God, it's, it's anyway, when one of the characters decides to join the movement, you oh, want a- Ingrid, Ingrid, right? Ingrid, yeah. Ingrid, I was like, I, 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 something, um, which, you know, you understand why, because this is the world she's in. And she sees that sort of hypocrisy that we all share, you know, at least some of us do. <laughs> some don't, apparently. My wife grew up in the Midwest and one day we're watching the news and I said, wait, am I a coastal elite? She said, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, right. that's the coastal elite party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so says so says the, the millionaires on, uh, on Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, the Middleman is a great book, and uh, like I said, I mean, it's 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 not just a, a great thriller of a of a sort of you know cat and mouse and 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 the FBI and, and investigations and stuff, but it's also it is it does give a window into uh, a, a great it's a great picture of the the anger and angst that is culture wide as we see this election these election cycles play out. I mean, this is a phenomenon that's not going to go away anytime yeah, soon. Sure. So this is a great sort of engaging and fun way to 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 enter into and reflect on something that's seriously affects you know where americans live yeah yeah good i'm glad that's exactly what i wanted to write hey thanks for writing the book and thanks for spending some <laughs> time talking with me about it thanks for having me scott it was great fun thanks for listening to give and take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. 
It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Olin for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Middleman. It's a great read. You will not regret it. I promise you. And thanks to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.